самой лучшей девушке своей. Если писем не получишь, сообщи скорее. Если есть успеха, жуткий девничий трон, Здесь чернила очень редки, очень скверное перо. Hello, this is Rory O'Connor here to introduce both myself as a podcaster and uh, this, my first podcast, about how Putin came to power. I've got big plans for future podcasts, including interviews of, of, uh, of many people with uh, interesting stories to tell. And um, I would hope that these that future such interviews would reflect the qualities of this podcast. Um, to, I want to ask people questions from a position not of ignorance but of knowledge of the uh, importance of the stories they need and want to tell and i would hope that whatever the force of the podcast this first one that that the uh, that at least the right questions would be asked so i hope you enjoy the fruits of the research i'm well aware of the force the, there might be fact I'm pretty sure there are um, residual uh, mouth clicks and all the rest of it apparently the secret as I know now is to have uh, just the right amount of hydration not too much not too little but just right and uh, the other thing is the slightly monotone uh, don't wake the tiger uh, voice all this I hope can be forgiven and I hope you'll enjoy the information presented here so i'll be glad to hear from you either way positive comments but especially negative ones and i thank you for listening vladimir putin became the acting president of russia on january the 1st 2000 when he was elected president two months later in march a number of events during Putin's time as leader gave people paying attention pause for thought, such as the death in custody of Sergei Magnitsky after he discovered fraud in government, the 2008 war in Georgia, and the murders of the journalist Anna Polikovskaya and the former Russian intelligence officer Alexander Litvinenko. But Putin has only really captured the world's imagination since 2014, first with Russia's annexation of Crimea, then with the apparent triumph of beating the United States to the punch by staging a military intervention in Syria in 2015, and above all with the allegations of a Russian influence campaign intended to swing last year's US presidential election to Donald Trump. Visiting London with my family in 2003, I was surprised by the Russian flags along the Royal Mile, which it turned out were there to mark the state visit of President Putin. I thought no more of it, and we headed by boat to Greenwich for the afternoon. Whether intentionally or not, Putin followed us that way, and while we were waiting for the return journey along the Thames, we clapped eyes on him, maybe 50 feet away, smiling his head off. A makeshift crowd of tourists and Londoners gathered jovially around, and I will never forget a Londoner cheering, Yeah, Putin! Such a scene is unimaginable today, and we knew nothing about what was troubling about him, even then. So, because they are largely unknown, and because they were dubious, it is worth recounting the circumstances in which Putin began his ascent to power, near the end of Russia's chaotic first post-communist decade, in 1999. This is the first of two podcasts about how Vladimir Putin came to power. The second podcast will examine the evidence that the Russian apartment bombings of 1999 were carried out with the collusion of individuals in a Russian intelligence service. This podcast is about the power struggles Putin faced and the help he got from a Kremlin clique which smoothed his path. 
It's also about that clique's plans for a war in Chechnya and about the mostly forgotten war of Dagestan. Both wars, the evidence suggests, were planned by the Kremlin clique to solve their political problems, and Putin keenly prosecuted them. Here is a clip of the Russian billionaire Boris Berezovsky talking in London in 2007 about the Russian political situation in late 1998 and 99. But none of these people, Primakov, Kiryenka certainly, Stepashin, none of these people were a possible president. Until suddenly, in 1999, Putin. Why, why Putin? You're absolutely wrong. Uh, everyone, uh, because it's absolutely different, uh, let's say, mentality in this country, for example, on the Western general, but particularly in this country and in Russia. People pay attention not to personality, but the chair. And I was absolutely sure that those one who will become prime minister will be next president. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, it's not just my emotions and my, my personal estimation, but if you uh, return back uh, to, to numbers and the pools of that time, who knew Kiryenka before he became prime minister? No one. Okay. No one. But in two months, his rating became 20%. Mm. Yeltsin, at that time, rating was 5%. Mm. Yes? He became 20%. He changed uh, 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 Kiryenka to Primakov. Primakov was known, but his rating was 1%. In two months, his rating became 40%. He fired Primakov, put Stepashin, and in two months Stepashin become 20% rate. Okay, it just demonstrates that uh, people, it, it, it was important that Yeltsin, people hate him, but it doesn't matter, because he put in the chair, big chair, mm -hmm. And people believe in that, yes? Mm -hmm. Okay, but the, the, I accept that's very interesting and important. Uh, but why was Putin, in the end, the one? And describe the process, because you were still close to Yeltsin okay, at okay. that time. I, I, I start from the end point, yes? Uh, I remember how uh, he was introduced to Yeltsin, and after that Yeltsin said, mm, not bad, but why it's so small? <laughs> <laughs> In the video accompanying this clip, Beresovsky is making a hand gesture to suggest Putin's height. But part of the serious political point he was making was that Russian prime ministers were coming and going like the tide. And 1999 was Russia's year of the three prime ministers. Two PMs were fired, two PMs were hired, and Vladimir Putin was the last man standing in this mix-up. In choosing a prime minister, Boris Yeltsin wanted his personal choice of his successor as president and he did not want a candidate less than totally loyal to him. Yeltsin's Kremlin advisers had their own reasons to fear a hostile succession. These were the terms of reference for the Kremlin's actions that year. But the winds were against Yeltsin and the Kremlin. One opinion poll said Yeltsin's popularity was as low as 2%. The Communist Party was attempting to impeach him, and the Prime Minister at the beginning of 1999, Yevgeny Primakov, was keeping them in his cabinet. Primakov was already popular, and this move positioned him well as a centrist before the following year's presidential election. Yeltsin's Kremlin advisers had a financial dog in this fight. It wasn't just the communists they had to see off. More important was the man most likely to succeed Yeltsin as president, Yuri Lushkov, the mayor of Moscow. Lushkov wanted to strip the assets of the people in Yeltsin's Kremlin and likely to imprison them 
Under Lushkov's threat, the advisers too wanted a successor they could control. In fact, the popular PM Primakov and the mayor Lushkov joined forces when Primakov was fired in May 99, and together they looked unstoppable. Something had to be done. Who were these Kremlin advisers? Russians call them the family because of their loyalty to Yeltsin. One of its most important members, Tatyana Jechenko, was in fact Yeltsin's daughter. She would later marry another member. They included some quite famous names, such as the billionaire and later exiled Boris Berezovsky and the Chelsea football club owner Roman Abramovich. Abramovich is said to have been one of its most hardcore members, making plans to ban the Communist Party and dissolve Parliament if the presidential elections in December 99 went badly. Yeltsin's daughter was heavily under the influence of her friend Berezovsky. He made dissolving Parliament unnecessary by coming up with the idea of a party totally loyal to the Kremlin, which was duly created and did its job. Vladimir Putin, too, was a member of the family. As a member of the presidential staff, he first came on Yeltsin's radar by writing to-the-point informative reports about Russia's provinces. His KGB background and loyalty to the family led to his appointment as chief of the Federal Security Service in July 1998. This is the famous FSB, which deals with Russian internal security. As FSB chief, Putin owed his position in the cabinet to Yeltsin, not to the Prime Minister, Primakov. According to Tatyana Dyachenko, Yeltsin's daughter, Primakov disliked Putin and sought to have him removed. By her account, one of Primakov's gambits was to tell Yeltsin that FSB officers were utterly demoralised. Her father summoned Putin and was told that there was no truth in the allegations. This story is impossible to verify, but Putin's mere survival, while Primakov got the boot, corroborates Yeltsin's good impression of Putin. His position as the respected FSB chief itself gave him kudos. Putin was politic in gaining the loyalty of other influential family members. It was reported that Putin used to wait until Dyachenko had spoken before expressing an opinion. And when Primakov sought Boris Beresovsky's arrest for alleged criminality, Putin showed up at Beresovsky's birthday party. Beresovsky later said that Putin had acted courageously and went on to explain, he did not give in to Primakov. Primakov possessed enormous power and he entered into a conflict with them. Putin also abolished one of the FSB's economic sections which helped protect Beresovsky's companies from scrutiny. In 1999, a scandal about laundered Russian money in American banks implicated Beresovsky. It looked like he had no way out of Russia with his wealth intact. He needed a pliable successor. All of the family, and especially Yeltsin, Dyachenko, his daughter, and Beresovsky, had good reason to think Putin was a suitable candidate for president. Dagestan is a republic in the Russian Federation, which is roughly the equivalent of an American state. The upper part of the Caspian Sea is to its east, and Chechnya, which is another republic in Russia, is to its west. It's right on Russia's southern border, far from Moscow, with Georgia and Azerbaijan to its south. War broke out in Dagestan in August 1999, the same month that Putin was appointed prime minister. According to the Russian government, the justification for its war in Chechnya, which began the following month, was the war of Dagestan. So it is worth looking at. 
The shortest possible briefing on the war is that a fundamentalist Wahhabi group called the Islamic International Brigade invaded from Chechnya. The brigade, which was led by the Chechen Samil Basayev and the Saudi Ibn Khattab, was officially devoted to expelling Russia and creating an Islamic union between Dagestan and Chechnya. Basayev was in fact a faithful Muslim, but not a Wahhabi. An initial force between 1,500 and 3,000 men invaded on August the 7th, after a number of border clashes on previous days. They took control of small villages in two of the 41 districts in Dagestan, districts close to the Chechen border. But to their surprise, they met stiff opposition from villagers unkeen on war and Wahhabism. Then came Russian artillery and air power, followed by an infantry counter-attack. The Wahhabi withdrawal began on August the 23rd. Basayev and Khatab and their forces withdrew by August the 26th, though there was a large-scale diversionary second invasion much further north along the Dagestan-Chechen border to help Dagestanis in the centre of Dagestan who rose with the invasion. All fighting was over in Dagestan by mid-September, and the Russians had begun an air campaign in Chechnya. All told, the death toll was at least in the high hundreds. The Russian figures, to be taken with a little salt, are that 1,500 to 2,000 rebels in total died, and that 279 Russian soldiers did. Once Russian troops had beaten the invaders back to Chechnya, this squalid conflict was directly followed by the Chechen War. That is the superficial account of the War of Dagestan, and with it, how the Chechen War began. But planning for conflict in Chechnya seemingly began in March 1999, when the local head of the Interior Ministry was kidnapped for ransom in Chechnya's main airport. Chechnya at this time had a weak central government, with many areas under the control of warlords with a vaunted attachment to Islam. Any of these were possible perpetrators. The plan was immediately to create a so-called sanitary cordon along the internal border with the rest of Russia, and also to seal the border with Georgia. But the Prime Minister, Yevgeny Primakov, objected because of the cost and because the border operation was too difficult. That put paid to that until he was sacked. Primakov's disloyalty got him sacked, but the tipping point came in March, when Yeltsin fell sick and was subject to a vote of impeachment in the Duma. The family forced Primakov's removal and appointed the piggy-in-the-middle Prime Minister, Sergei Stepashin, on May the 12th. Two days later, the Duma finally held its impeachment vote, which had been long in the works. There were numerous indictments, but they all failed to get the needed 300 votes. The one that came closest, which accused Yeltsin of being responsible for the first Chechen war, got 283 votes. A leaked draft presidential decree was published soon after by the newspaper Novaya Gazeta, it showed that the Kremlin would announce emergency rule at least until July if Yeltsin had been impeached. If Primakov had fought harder against his dismissal, the impeachment proceedings might have succeeded. And the signs are that the Kremlin was getting ready to rule by decree. A retired general was brought to Moscow to be Stepashin's deputy in case Primakov put up a fight. As far as Stepashin is concerned, he got the job because the other candidate was too close to Barashovsky and disliked by the Duma. He lost it because Yeltsin believed he was unwilling to fight hard enough against Primakov and Lushkov. He rejected the cancellation of elections and the fabrication of fake compromising material against opponents. 
he was also becoming popular in his own right. Much of the information about the Kremlin's plans for Chechnya and keeping power comes from Sergei Stepashin, who was Prime Minister for less than three months, but before that was Interior Minister, and therefore closely involved in the planning. In 2000, Stepashin told the New York Times that more ambitious planning for the occupation of the northern third of Chechnya began while he was Prime Minister in July 99. Evidently, the invasion by Shamil Basayev's gang in Dagestan was only the most obvious reason to occupy Chechnya. It is true that there was a good deal of banditry, but this had been the case since 1996, when Russia withdrew. Why invade again now? Stepashin's fate is a reminder that Putin wasn't just the inevitable nominee of the family. He was also very lucky. Stepashin's competitor for the job might have got it and held on. Primakov might have fought harder against his firing. Stepashin could have been Prime Minister on the declaration of emergency rule. I've left the most intriguing of Stepashin's comments about the planning of the Chechen war till last. A journalist asked him, did the Kremlin plan to provoke a conflict so that Putin could quickly extinguish it? This was his response. Having provoked a war, it is difficult in that region to quickly gain a victory. It is another matter that certain agreements were possible in order to destabilise the situation and to bring it under emergency rule. Having provoked a war, it is difficult in that region to quickly gain a victory. It is another matter that certain agreements were possible in order to destabilise the situation and to bring it under emergency rule. According to Stepashin, making things easier for Putin wasn't the main goal. Having the option to avoid the parliamentary and presidential elections was. There's no doubt that Masharov's government failed to keep order during the brief period of de facto independence between the wars. Criminal gangs and kidnappings flourished and renegade commanders staged attacks inside Russia. The first evidence of Beryshovsky's possible role in organising the war at Dagestan came in September, the month after it had been fought. Recordings of telephone conversations from June between a voice sounding like Beryshovsky's and voices sounding like those of the Chechen radicals Movladi Udogov and Kazbek Makhachev were published. The two men were allies of Basayev in an organisation called the Congress of the Peoples of Chechnya and Dagestan. In a basic code, they were negotiating the price of an incursion by the Chechens into the neighbouring region of Dagestan. Beryshovsky at first denied the voice was his and said there was no truth in the story. But even in 1999, the editor of a newspaper owned by Beryshovsky admitted that the Chechens were lured into Dagestan and allowed to get involved there so as to have a legal pretext to restore federal authority in the Chechen Republic and begin the active phase of the fight against terrorists gathered in Chechnya. But the editor gave the following attribution of responsibility. This was clearly an operation planned by the Russian secret services and was approved to the very top. Beryshovsky, of course, was not very far from the very top. By 2009, another Beryshovsky surrogate had gone further. Alexander Goldfarb was an ally and friend of Beryshovsky in the United States. Goldfarb at one time played a courageous role in helping Alexander Litvinenko escape from Russia, but his account of Kremlin conversations with Chechen separatists put a dent in Beryshovsky's story. Goldfarb wrote that there had been a secret agreement between Wahhabi Chechen separatists and the Kremlin. 
Wahhabis would engage in guerrilla attacks in Dagestan, which would be met with a Russian invasion of Chechnya. Aslan Maskadov's government would fall and its place would be taken by the Wahhabis. Then they would agree to remain inside the Russian Federation in exchange for autonomy inside Chechnya and de facto Sharia law there. Goldfarb wrote that Bereshovsky knew about the plan but opposed it. Goldfarb claimed that the plan was backed by Stepashin and Putin. Goldfarb's logical source for this story was Bereshovsky. To summarise, by Goldfarb's account, which is open to grave doubt, if his friend Bereshovsky did not like it, he certainly went along with it. Stepashin talked about certain agreements. Bereshovsky said that was an absolutely professional operation of the FSB, without a doubt. The only difference between the accounts of Bereshovsky and Stepashin is who they blame for the operation. They both in effect say, not me, someone else did it. But no one denies that the Kremlin was up to its neck in it. This time, it's yachts, casinos and fancy villas. Fun in the sun on the French Riviera. Thanks for joining us. The quintessential image of luxuriating on a beach in Europe is here on the Côte d'Azur, or the French Riviera. And after soaking up more than our share of sun, we'll see how this glittering stretch of France's Mediterranean coast offers more than just a first-class beach break. Part of the deal between the Kremlin and Chechen fighters seems to have been struck in a villa in the town of Beaulieu on the French Riviera in the early morning of the 5th of July. French intelligence kept an eye on the villa because it belonged to an arms dealer. A businessman emerged from it one day and collected Anton Surikov, an officer of Russian military intelligence, at Nice airport. A little later, the most wanted man in Russia, Basayev, arrived at Beaulieu port and went to the villa. Surikov had in the past been a comrade of and in fact friendly with Basayev. The Russians and the Chechens had been on the same side fighting against Georgia in 1993 during an early post-Soviet conflict. And this was when Surikov and Basayev met. Shortly before the meeting, Surikov went in a Rolls Royce to collect a man whom French intelligence identified as Andrei Voloshin, the head of the Russian presidential administration and another key member of the family, and they returned to the villa. Here is an account of the meeting from the Russian magazine Versailles. All night long at the villa, something was taking place. The watchfulness of the guard was elevated and a strong magnetic ray spread out onto the territory around it so that mobile telephones in a radius of several kilometres did not work. In the morning, the same Rolls-Royce sped to the airport and a man similar to Voloshin flew to Moscow. In a day's time, all of the villa's residents had left. By accident or not, but after a time, in August, there occurred the incursion of the band of Shamil Basayev into Dagestan. Shockingly, the journalist Boris Kagerlitsky, who studied the Beaulieu meeting, made the allegation that the same system that had jammed mobile telephones inadvertently made it easy for French intelligence to eavesdrop on the Beaulieu meeting. And the academic John Dunlop, whose book The Moscow Bombings of September 1999 is a fundamental source for this podcast, writes there that a French intelligence official told an experienced Western academic, who I think is likely to be Dunlop himself, that French intelligence does indeed possess evidence that coincides roughly with what Boris Kagerlitsky wrote. As an ordinary citizen, allow me naively to say that the way intelligence agencies of the East and West hang on to material of this type, potentially useful for blackmail and counter-blackmail, but for the public, static and useless, fills me with disgust. There's often danger in its release, but always greater danger in its concealment.
If Berezovsky's dealings with Chechen gangsters and the Beaulieu story sound hard to believe, it is worth bearing in mind the Kremlin's puzzling reaction to the widespread foreknowledge of the likelihood of an incursion into Dagestan. After the invasion, Putin's predecessor as FSB director noted that the FSB gave accurate warnings about how events would develop. There would be the entry of an armed group into one or another village, its seizure, then answering artillery fire, and an attempt by the bandits to draw the population onto their side. An official in Dagestan said everyone knew a war was coming by springtime, including the women working at the bazaars. But as that official noted, the Kremlin's reaction was to withdraw troops from the Dagestan-Chechen border. Already in June, control of the border was transferred from specialist border guards to the local police. And finally, when Shamil Basayev's men invaded Dagestan, both special forces and local police were ordered not to fight. Time magazine talked to a Russian special forces commander who said that as the Chechens were preparing to withdraw from Dagestan, he had Chechen warlord Shamil Basayev in his sights. With the simple squeeze of his finger, he could take out Basayev. But he says that he received an order over his walkie-talkie. Hold your fire. The Chechens left under Russian helicopters. Here on C-SPAN, Vladimir Putin was confirmed today as Russia's fifth prime minister in the past 18 months. Russia's lower house of parliament, the Duma, came back from a summer holiday to vote on the nomination of Putin, a former KGB agent and national security chief. Now coverage of the story from Russia Public Television News. So today we have a new prime minister, Vladimir Putin. The State Duma has approved his nomination by an overwhelming majority. 233 parliamentarians voted for, 84 voted against and with 17 abstentions. President Boris Yeltsin has already congratulated the new premier with the new job. Their meeting was held in the presidential residence Gorky 9. I liked your speech, your answers to the questions. You seemed calm and reserved. You sounded very convincing. After some border clashes from August the 4th onwards, Shamil Basayev's men invaded Dagestan on the 7th. The militants were beaten out of Dagestan by September the 14th, and Russia began an aerial bombing campaign in Chechnya, which lasted until the 28th. Altogether, up till the 28th of September, more than 3,000 people died in the war of Dagestan. And while all of this was going on, Vladimir Putin was being placed in power. Yeltsin started making arrangements to cashier Stepashin on the same day as the border clashes began, the 4th. On the day Putin was nominated, he chaired a Security Council meeting. Yeltsin wrote in his memoirs, Putin turned to me and requested absolute power to conduct the needed military operation. I supported him without hesitation. In the memoir written to introduce him to the world, Putin stated that he had, to a large degree, been responsible for the conduct of the war. On the 16th of August, he was very narrowly confirmed as Prime Minister by the Duma, 
He needed 226 votes and he got 233. The vote's narrowness is a reminder that it is a mistake to see the Kremlin family's deals and synthetic war as exclusively for the benefit of Putin. Emergency rule could as easily have been introduced. In the event, Putin has not looked back.